Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text is taken from the epistle lesson, Revelation chapter 22, and we choose only one word from that text. Jesus said, Come. Come. That's the meaning of the word Advent, isn't it? The coming. This is the coming of Christ. It's a unique time this first Sunday of Advent because, like we might say, the two sides of a baseball where they are sewn together, the very end of time is when Christ will come. And now, of course, we look forward to the fact that He came or would come to us as that child that was born there in the manger. Sometimes we have problems dealing with the question of what happens in between the time when Christ came into this world in the flesh and the time that he will come at the end. And we say to ourselves, where does he come in between? The comings of Christ are threefold. Yes, Christ came as a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. Christ will come again at the very end of time. But in the meantime, we wonder, Lord, what in the world has happened and are you in control? Just look at the world in which we live. What do we see? All you have to do is turn on the television or read the news in the paper. What does it say? That this world is full of materialism and full of greed. <clears throat> there are power structures going on in contention with each other all over the world, if not even in the very smallest parts of our own life. We see wars, <clears throat> cosmic wars, nations against nations. We see wars of just people against their, even their own family members. We find false teaching, false doctrine that would lead people astray from any hope of eternal life because of that free gift that God gives People somehow have been blinded to it. We see all kinds of immorality in our world. It's strewed in front of us. We see spiritual indifference. Spiritual indifference. Massive cases of unbelief in the world as we look at the abandonment of churches just Go to Europe, we would say, but it's happening here in the United States as well. There is, of course, the question of disease and cancer that seems to be so prevalent in our world today. Death all around us, hard-heartedness, life with so little peace and so little love in the world today, a brokenness and despair among people. Where's God in all this? We come to discover that the book of Revelation was really written so that we might have comfort knowing that our God indeed does still come and his hand of control and rule is still operative in our world today. We just have to look at it through a different kind of telescope or microscope. He came, yeah, he came. But at the end of time, when we look to that last day, we see 
that every eye, it tells us, will see him, and all who have pierced him will wail. His present coming, however, we see John, the apostle, who says that he was in the Spirit, worshiping, and he has a vision, and Christ comes to him. But what does he see? Not a Jesus who's a little baby, not a Jesus who is walking and talking and sleeping with his disciples on ships and getting up and rebuking winds and waves. This is the Jesus that he sees. He sees somebody who is in a long robe with golden, a golden plate upon his chest. His head and his hair are as white as snow and his eyes are blazing flames of fire. His feet are burnished bronze, and there are seven stars that he holds within his hands, and out of his mouth issues forth a two-edged sword. And he says in the rumbling voice of the Son of God, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. You can see why John fell at his feet as though he were dead. He comes, and he comes even in time to us too. He promised to come, he said in that book of Revelation, to the church in Pergamum. There were those seven churches there in Asia Minor. But he came and he told them that they needed to repent. He wars against them, he said, with the sword of his mouth. His word is going to have that effect. And to the church that was in Sardis, he said they had fallen asleep. That is to say that their faith simply had disappeared. And he said, I will come like a thief in the night and you will not know the hour. Indeed, he would come. We think, why in the world would he do this to his own church? But he explains that when he comes to chastise, when he comes sometimes to even punish, he does so, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. It is out of his love that he comes in that chastisement. We are told in the sixth chapter that so many of these things that we consider to be signs of the, simply the world uh, gone amok are actually things that God has sent upon the world in order that the world might take their hands off of you and me. That forces the world into a recognition that they are not gods, that they are not capable of being able to save themselves. And so he sends his four horsemen out into the world. The white horse he sends to conquer. The red horse comes and takes peace from the earth. The black horse imposes scarcity upon the world. And the pale horse brings famine and pestilence upon the world. He sends the seven angels, and each of the angels blows its trumpets, and as they do so, lightning and thunder and earthquakes and fire and blood and destruction of both land and sea, he shakes the powers 
of darkness, the demonic world. And as he shakes that demonic world, he brings along with it a bitterness of life so that all the stars of the heavens, which are represented by those anti-God satanic powers, that these are things that are being shaken. And he sends out by means of this angel of the bottomless pit, locusts and scorpions. These are those false teachers who are released upon the earth in order to cause anxiety and sadness and stress within the hearts of men. And all of this is punishment upon the world for its idolatry and its murder and its sorcery, upon thieves and even the immoral. The good news, however, is that even in the midst of him imposing all these things upon the earth in order to be able to bring the earth to its knees, he sends another angel. It's called in chapter 14, the angel of the mid-heavens, who proclaims the eternal gospel, he says, to all who dwell upon the earth. An angel that comes now and says to us, that this Jesus Christ who has come into the world has come into the world not to condemn the world as it says in John chapter 3, but that the world might be saved through him. As Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, he says, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. That God, as Paul says, in Christ has reconciled the whole world to himself and he is no longer holding or charging men's sins against them. This is the message of the gospel that is proclaimed to the world even as these punishments, these chastisements are being imposed upon the world. And the angel cries out, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens and the earth. What then can we say as Christians that these two comings are for us together? We cannot separate them. That coming upon the last day and that coming of that child in that manger. What do we see when we hold these in contrast to each other? On the one hand, the book of Revelation sets before us what it is that we are to expect and what we can look forward to and anticipate in heaven. It shows us a city that it says is shining like the clear crystal constructed out of gold and jasper with foundations of sapphire and emerald of ox and topaz and amethyst and the gates of pearl. In light of that, what does it therefore mean that our Lord and our Savior would be born there in Bethlehem. There he enters into the world in a dark and dingy stable. Walls that are made out of stone and rough-hewn wood. Dirt floors and animal manure. This, this he gave up from heaven in order that he might bring about our redemption and share in our humanity. Without that vision that we can see that is waiting for us in his 
final coming, what do we see? We see a lamb shining like the sun where night will never come when it is day forever, where there is never any hatred nor vice nor sin, where the water of life flows out of the center of the city and the tree of life yields its various fruits where nations are healed of their divisions and wars and where worship is pure and never ends. How can we see what he would endure for us in contrast to this? That he would step down into our world where we have a sun that sets and a moon that shines at night, but where the Son of God himself is relegated to darkness and where war and hatred abound, where we are made to drink of the opinions of the ignorant and the nations that cannot in any way give or offer peace, where life is always ending even in death and into this world, that Lord and that Savior has come, the Son of God, and he has come to save us. So blessed are those, this text says, who take their robes and wash them. Wash them in the waters of holy baptism. Wash them in the blood of the Lamb in preparation for his coming. What does that mean? It means that we take our soiled lives, our sinful lives, our doubts and our unbelief, and we ask our Lord and our Savior to forgive them for the sake of Christ. And as we wash our robes and we make them white, this prepares us for that day that we are going to stand before him in heaven. And we take our false religions and our immorality and our murders and we wash them all clean in the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. The text says this, Blessed are those who hear that word of invitation, who hear that word of invitation and hear the words of Jesus say, Come. Come. Come to drink when we are thirsty. Come to drink without price. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding guard and keep your thoughts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.